This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on Football CFB today by a true Celtic legend and a true Scottish football icon as well. The man that joins me today won seven league titles with Celtic, four Scottish Cups, three League Cups, a Glasgow Cup and he won the European Cup as well. He is a Lisbon Lion and he is Jim Craig. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much indeed, Callum. And you know the most attractive medal of the lot is the Glasgow Cup medal? Really? Because... It's got the crest of Glasgow, you know, the bird that never flew, the fish that, you know, couldn't swim and, and all that kind of thing on it. And it's a really attractive medal. <laughs> and it is somewhere now because I, I gave all my medals away. I wanted to live in the present rather than, you know, have a lot of things from the past there. So I, I gave a lot of them away and uh, I've, I've not seen the Glasgow Cup medal for years and years, but somebody's got it. One of my cousins has got it somewhere along the line. Before we start talking about football and your career, lockdown has, has been a challenge for so many of us. I know you're really looking forward to getting your hair cut, you were saying to me off there. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's getting longer and longer and it's now, it must be about seven months since I had it done. And um, I got a wonderful phone call the other day from this lovely young lady that does my hair. And she says, Jim, can I book you in for Friday? And I said, you certainly can, Karen. So on Friday coming at 12 o'clock. I'm getting it home. Well, not all sheared off, but I'm getting a real tidy up. And uh, I should look a lot better afterwards. <laughs> the first question I've got for you is, you are, as I said in my intro, a Lisbon Lion. I mean, at the time, it must have been incredible. But how does it feel to be known as a Lisbon Lion now, in, in hindsight, with hindsight? Because the greatest side that ever played for Celtic, such a historic club, and and that team will always be remembered. So just how incredible does it feel even in the present day to be part of such a historic team? Well, quite amazing. Uh, still, to be perfectly honest, because um, you're walking along the road. <laughs> and uh, I, as I mentioned earlier on, I live now just outside Perth. I'm about eight miles from Perth. Now, I can walk into Perth and I'm not recognised very much because... Or not Glasgow. I go back to Glasgow and I walk along the street and I get stopped every 10 yards for a photograph or a, an autograph or something. <laughs> Selfie, you know, the usual things nowadays. But you'll get a father with a, a, a son who's maybe 11, you know, and he'll say to me, this man's a legend. And the son looks up at me and he's thinking to himself, this is an old white-haired guy that's standing here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, probably when he starts walking, he'll be limping in one leg or something like that. You know, so uh, what's legend about it? You know, so but it's just amazing that we still uh, are recognised and still acknowledged after fifty years. And you can't really go anywhere in Scotland without somebody at some point will say to you, you know, do you mind if I have a chance? Is not at all? You know. Because it was such a, a memorable occasion and it was very good for the country, you know. It uh, gave the whole country a boost. Now, I mean, half the country supports Rangers and all, but it did give them a boost as well. And a few years later, they did their own big moment when they won the Cup Winners' Cup, you know. And um, we undoubtedly gave them a boost at the same time. So, uh, no, it's been a privilege to go through your life as a Lisbon Lion. In terms of your fellow Lions, Obviously, Jinky Johnson, Tommy Gemmell, Big Billy, Bertie Ald, <laughs> Bobby Lennox, Stevie Chalmers. I could go on and on and on. Just what were those guys like to share a dressing room with throughout your time well, with them? To be perfectly honest, when I arrived, they were just perfectly on, on, you know, honest guys, you know, and just like anybody else. Um, and they never changed all the time. I think what you've got to... Remember, Callum, is, and this is not just about Celtic Football Club, this is about football in general. Football is a team game, and it wins trophies because the team has performed as a unit. I mean, we have these things that 
have no real time for player of the year and you know player of the century and all that kind of thing. But that particular guy who got the award could not do it without the guys alongside them, the guys behind them, the guys in front of them. And it's this, the team factor is the important thing. Now, the greatest thing about the Lisbon Lions was that we had uh, a very good goalkeeper. He's an old man by that time, but he was still a very good goalkeeper. He was 36 at the time, right? We had defenders in McNeil, Gemmell, myself and Clark, who had been brought up uh, as part of the WM formation, where the two fullbacks pivoted around the centre half for cover, and Clark was in there as well. We had two midfield players, and you take your choice from old um, Bobby Murdoch and Charlie Gallagher, who could get the ball and then spray the passes. And of course, their forward line with Johnson, Wallace, Chalmers, and Lennox, and Hughes in reserve as well, and Joe McBride there, all could score goals. So every particular part of the team had a strength, and when we combined, that was what made that work. Um, and it worked pretty well for most of the time. We had our moments where it didn't work, particularly South America was a, a bad time, but then uh, strange circumstances up against a culture where players would spit at you and get away with it, you know, and that was uh, not what we were expecting at the time. How did Jockstein manage the group? Because we all hear about Mr. Steen as, as being the iconic football manager that he is, sadly no longer with us. You you played under him. You were part of his greatest success with winning the European Cup with Celtic. Just describe what he was like, because for younger people like myself, obviously I wasn't born when, when Jock was, was still living, which is, for me is a great shame. I'd have loved to have been able to, to listen to live interviews with him or potentially even have met him one day. Just what was he like to work with and what was he like as a character? Well, to begin with, he knew the business. He knew the football business. And uh, both as a player, he'd have been a player himself with Celtic, and uh, uh, he knew uh, how players react. And he also knew the managerial business because he'd been at Dunfermline, he'd been at Hibs and before he came to Celtic. And he knew how teams work and how teams and how players react to managers. And they put that all together. And um, he never asked us to do anything that we weren't particularly capable of. He would come just occasionally and pull you to one side and say, maybe next time you're in that situation, try to do such and such, um, which was maybe something you'd ever, ever thought of. But when you thought about it when you're driving home or, you know, lying in bed that night, you thought, oh, that's a valid point in actual fact, you know, and I haven't uh, maybe tried that before. And he, he just was the right man at the right place. And to be fair to us as well, he had the right group of players because he had a, a group of players that was um, very fit, uh, worked very hard at training, um, believed in him, which is the other thing you've got to have as a manager. We believed that what he said was true and uh, put it into operation. And um, it worked uh, pretty well. In, in terms of Jock, everyone knows him as being the, the immortals have said who was in charge of that team, but how important were Sean Fallon and Neil Mocken alongside him? Well, backup teams are always very important because they'll come along sometimes and say to you. And we also had Jim Steele, who's a master as well. And maybe the boss would give you a volley at half time. And uh, then he'd go out to the dressing room, having said his piece, made his point, not very happy with us for some reason or other. And then they do better in the second half idea, and he would go to the dressing room. And still would be covering and say, Don't worry about it, son, he's all talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll have moments like that. You know, you would say that to the younger guys that were just coming into the team and stuff like that. You know, and, I, and through the years, we had boys that joined us from other clubs and, and were a bit uh, maybe put off by maybe one of the tirades that he would go for. He never went for throwing anything around like that song, but he would give you a volley if he didn't like what he saw. And, but then immediately that was all finished. It was then what we're going to do about it, put it into operation. And that's the other important thing about managerial. They must always have <clears throat> a plan for you to take up, to make up for what you didn't do in the first half or in the first period of the game, say, you know. And got very good at that and very good at you know, point out 
Um, he, he, there was one player in Scotland whom I played against regularly then, and he he was a left winger, so he was my immediate opponent, and he was a nice guy. But he kept trying to run past me, and I was quicker than him, and you know, therefore he couldn't run past me, right? So, so I would occasionally when we were playing that team, come in with a team sheet, their team sheet before the game, and he would say to me, Kenny, you're all right, and he would mention the boy's name, he says, he's playing. So, <laughs> I was doing the game, this guy used to get a ball and try and run past me, you know, and I used to think to myself, why does he keep doing that? You know, and why does nobody say to him, he's actually quicker than you? And I don't know, to this day, I've met him a couple of times recently, you know, and because uh, he was not too far from me at first. And I think to myself, why did you never try something different? Why did you never go across the park? Then I could do it like those And I watch football matches and I see sometimes a player doing the same thing all the time. And he's getting stopped by his immediate opponent. And I think to myself, oh, God, that's that situation I was in as well. It's really hard, hard to watch. <laughs> And then, see, before we come to the European Cup run, in terms of your success at Celtic, as I say, seven league titles in there, what were those league campaigns like? Because you know what it's like yourself. It's not a sprint. It's, it's a real marathon of a season. Yeah, well, every game must be taken in its own merits and uh, treated like that. And, uh, you know, any sensible manager will tell you, as Jock did, you know, there'll be days when you don't play as well as you want to play, not for want of trying, but just sometimes you're just not quite good and good on the day. But those are the days when you've got to substitute hard work, graft and sheer determination for the talent and skill that I know you've got on other occasions, you know. And all teams do that, you know. I mean I see you've got a messy jersey uh, behind you there as well. Now I've got to give that guy a shoe. He's a hard worker. He's not only a great talent on the ball. He's a grafter. He puts in a shift. As did the men alongside him, like Iniesta and Zoe, all put a shift in. And the guys behind them in the middle of the park and further back, Piquet, Piquet centre back and all that, they put in a shift into a game as well. And that makes an enormous difference. It's one thing you have talent, but you've got to show the talent and you've got to put the talent into operation and you've got to ally it to determination and sheer drive and that if you get all those you've got a team and then in, in, in training when you were when you were playing with the lions what was it like when you were training against the likes of jimmy johnson bobby lennox when they were coming up against you well the curious thing was that we finished every day training with this game and at the start of the season, you were allocated to one of two teams. You were either a bib or a non-bib. I mean, somebody must have spent hours working that out, by the way. But you were either in the bibs or you were in the non-bibs. And you would never change sides. Badge of honour, you played for the non-bibs, or badge of honour, you played for the bibs. And at the end of training, they would play each other on the full pitch, two-touch. And if you had maybe three men injured for some reason or three men not able to play, the boss might let your team play three-touch to try and balance things up a wee bit. But you never, ever change sides. So I never, ever played against Jimmy Johnson or Bobby Lennox in a proper game because it was all two-touch. So I cannot answer your question. It must have been difficult to play against them. But... I never actually was in a position where I did play against them in what you might call a normal match. It was always that big game at the end of training, two-touch. And I tell you, it was played at a ferocious place because if you're playing two-touch all the time, a lot of time one-touch, as the ball's coming towards you, you're looking to see where you can pass it to. But, uh, you know, uh, even if you need one touch to get a wee bit in the position before the ball, it was played at a ferocious pace. And everybody really looked forward to it. But you were either one or the other. And uh, ne'er the twain shall meet. <laughs> when you l listen to, to the media now, when they talk about managers like Mourinho, Guardiola, Klopp, is there part of you that sometimes is sitting listening to that thinking when they talk about, oh, this is a new idea going, we were doing that back under steam? Yeah, most of it is, is not new. It's just a reinterpretation of something that's been there for years and years, you know. Um, actually, I've got a complaint about the modern game. You want to hear it? 
Yes, please. All right, okay. Now, I watch a game, <clears throat> I don't actually watch a great deal of football on television because uh, I, I find it frustrating to, to watch it sometimes, all right? <clears throat> but when I see it, <clears throat> the ball, Keeper throws the ball to the, the right back. He looks up, doesn't see anything too promising in front of it, passes it to the centre back. He's the same, passes it to the left back. Then it comes back away, goes to the centre half, it goes back to the right back again, he looks forward, there's nothing there, and he turns around and passes it back to the goalkeeper. And then he lumps it up the park. Now the fullback could have done that in the first flaming place, right? So why is he having wait, wait. I would ban the pass back in your own half. Now I've got to take you back to the 1920s. The goal scoring rate suddenly started to drop because fullbacks were always the most intelligent people in any football team. <laughs> it started to use the offside, which at that the offside law, which at that time was to have three men between you and the opposing goal in the opposition half. Now what the fullbacks did was they played up close to the halfway line and as the ball was being played forward, they stepped forward. And the players were getting caught offside. And if you look it up yourself, the goal scoring rate dropped dramatically during those years. Now Scotland was one of the, the, the nations that applied to FIFA saying you need to do something about it. And eventually the International Association Football Board, which runs the laws of the game, IAFD, it changed the, the wording from three people between you and the goal to two. Now you might not think that should make a great difference because the principle is still the same, but it did. And the goals started rising again. And then of course what happened was the same as has happened right through football where changes have always been made in defence at the expense of forwards. They made the attacking centre half of those days into a stopper centre half because it was important to shut the goals down again. And that has happened all the way through football. From the 118 of 1870 and 1880, we now have what? 352, 451. <laughs> it's always pure forwards, more defenders, shut the game down. But when I go to a football match, most of the action I want to see is in the final third of the pitch, in both ends. So I'm against the fact that they can just turn around and stick the ball back 40 yards to the goalkeeper to get out of trouble. I want that guy to get in trouble because I want to show him to show me he's a player, right? Player one, two, to get out of trouble. Go for uh, as I regularly did with Murdoch. You know, I'd get caught by way back more than half, level 18 yard line, right? And I would hear a shout, here, Kearney, and I'd look up, Murdoch was there. Knock the ball 10, 15 yards from, run past the guy that's in front of me, and go for the return. And uh, so I would like to see a game, as they did in, in uh, before they changed the offside law, they played a few games with different rules, like two referees they had uh, at one time, Celtic played, I think it was uh, Sir Lanark at Caskin in a game with those two referees to see if it made a difference. And eventually they went for the dropping of three men to two men. So I like to see a few games played where you weren't allowed to pass the ball back in your own half. Now, people will say to you, well, I'll just punt it out the park. Well, we've got to think about penalising that as well. No, punt it out the park. We've got to penalise that as well. I'm not having a player punting the ball straight out of the park. I want them to, to play football. I want them to play. I want to come forward and play that. So I would be delighted to see that brought into football. And I hope it does come in sooner rather than later because you've seen games where all the four, the, back, the, the defenders do is turn around and stick it 50 yards. As soon as they're back in their own half, they stick it 50 yards back to the flaming keeper. And then he punts it up the park past them. You know, I mean, it's totally illogical. So that's one thing I would like to see and I hope it's sooner rather than later. What's your opinion of the sort of modern, modern technology when it comes to the likes of VAR? Is that something that you think you would have liked when you were playing, or is that something you think just overcomplicates the game? Well, I often wonder if a penalty would have been given in Lisbon if they had VAR, because Mr. Capolini, whom I've met since, um, when I told him, he went down like a sack of potatoes, you know, and all I did was run across his path. As you, you, if you watch it, you'll see that I just merely ran across him. And um, it's not often penalties are given for something as simple as that. A, a, a very famous Scottish referee, whom I shall keep nameless because I don't want to, he's still alive, but I don't want to 
they damaged his chances and money coming back into the game. But uh, he said that he would have given an indirect free kick, which is a non, it's a non event, isn't it? No, nothing ever happens from an indirect free kick. It's the way of a referee getting out of a decision. <laughs> you know, we'll have an indirect free kick. <laughs> and then once it's wasted, <laughs> we'll start the game again. You know? <laughs> but, uh, well, I don't know. Um, sometimes you can see that it's of benefit. But I think the problem is that the press tends to publicise the faults, doesn't it? It never mentions the fact that a lot of it, what they see has been correct. It tends to publicise well, just after a weekend where there was a major hoo-ha, wasn't there, in one game at the weekend there. And, um, you know, I think that it will, it will continue to be there. I don't think they'll get rid of it. It will continue to be there. But in American uh, football, uh, gridiron, they use it regularly and it seems to work for them. So I don't see any reason why it can't work for us eventually. Let's now go down the path of the journey to Lisbon. In terms of the, the, the build-up and the, the games that led you there, you're thinking of Alexis Zurich, you're, you're playing Nonks, you're, then the semi-final eventually comes around with Dukla Prague. In terms of those games on the run-up to the final, what would you say was the toughest game? Or were any of them tough? Were you so confident in all of them? Well, I must tell you a, a great story. that uh, I missed the first two games because I was sitting my finals. Um, you normally sit the first part of your dental finals in March and the second part in June. So in March of that year of 66, <clears throat> just before March, uh, my name came over the loudspeaker system in the dental hospital with Mr. James P. Craig going to see the dean, right? So I'm thinking to myself, what have I done? You know, when somebody, when, <laughs> you know yourself, when somebody sends you, you're always, you know, what have I been involved in? And he said, um, have a seat, Mr. Craig. So I sat down and had a general chat and after a few minutes he says to me, you're struggling a bit. And I, I was about to say, well, not really. And he says, no, no, I don't mean you're struggling with your studies. You're struggling with the amount of time you're having to put into your studies. He says, you're, I've got the list here. What you had to do was before you start your final, you had to get a thousand points worth of work on patients, examinations. Uh, dentures, uh, scales and polish, fillings, crowns, all that kind of thing. You've got um, a, a percentage for each, uh, sorry, a, a, a mark for each of those, and you had to get a thousand before. He says, your number is is a way below, quite below everybody else. And I, and I, I went and complained, he says, no, no. He says, Mr. Craig, I'm not a stupid man. I know you're leaving early to go to training at Celtic Park. He says, which means you're not doing as much work as the rest. Your work is fine, he says, but you're not putting in as much of a shift as other people. He says, so <clears throat> what I suggest to do now, before we go any further, I never said this to you. And I looked at him and I said, you understand me? And I, I thought, well, yes. He says, I never said this to you. Okay. He says, I want you to send me a letter you're supposed to sit the first part of your finals in March and the second March in June. I want you to send me a letter asking, could you sit the first part of your finals in June and the second part of your finals in October? And he says, I'll okay that. So I went out of the room and I think myself, I'm totally bloody lost by the way. I'm absolutely lost over that. So I went to see a senior lecturer who was quite a pally guy, was a great football fan. And I said, I just went in to see the dean and I explained uh, all that he'd said. He says, well, Jimmy's doing you a favour. He says, he's actually letting you take time off to play football just now, then make it up during the summer and you'll have the point, you'll have the thousand points by the time you sit it in October. He says, he's done you a real favour. Yeah. Never heard anybody getting that before. So, it shows you, right? So, because I was sitting these finals in October, I missed the games against Nolk and Zurich because the boss said to me, on day one, he said to me, um, you're a bloody nuisance. And I said, why is that? He says, because you kind of come with me to America. On the, they went to American summer tour, 66. He said, you can't come because I know you're starting for your penalty. And he says, I'm not arguing about it. He says, I'd like you on a tour, so you're a bloody nuisance, you can't come to ask them. So anyway, 
Um, and, and by the way, that was thanks to Gene. Apparently, he said to Gene, "You know, I've just I had a trouble with Jim Craig today," and he she said something like, "Oh, does it cause you trouble very often?" He said, "No," and he explained what it was. And she said to him something along the lines of, "Well, listen, John, he's been doing this course for five years and he's nearly finished. Why don't you let him finish?" And then you've got him full time. <laughs> he says, "Well, fly to bed that night." I thought. Dead right. So get it over with. Now he says for the next few months, because I know your second part is in October, you train when you want. Come on to training if you want, but train at home because I know you've got bellows and parties along for you. Don't bother coming in if you're if you're stuck. So for those months I just um I, I kept up the training by the way, but um I very seldom visited Celtic Park. I just did it in Bellowson Park because it's just long from my house and um did my own training. So I missed not Missouri. So I came in for Vojvodina in uh, March of 67. That was my first game uh, in Europe that year. And they were undoubtedly the best team. They were a big, big team too, you know. And um, I mean, Gemma and I were 6-1 and it wasn't uh, normal for us to have opponents who were as tall as we were, but uh, we did <laughs> on that occasion. And uh, they were by far and away the best team they played. And in terms of getting to the final itself, what was the atmosphere like when it was clear that you were going to be facing the great Inter Milan side? Was there any fear at all? Or was Jock and his, his staff basically in a position where we deserve to be here in Merritt and we will win this final? We were a cocky bunch. And we never gave that thought that we were played Inter Milan. Really didn't. Never saw them. There was no matches in television in those days, you know. And uh, you went into games where you hadn't seen your opposition. And I used to ask the same question all the time. And I get the same answer all the bloody time as well. You know, I say, right, can I ask a question? Oh, God, here we, here we go. The boss would say, I don't know how quick he is. Because I would say, how quick is the winner? That's what I wanted to know. Right. Now, the reason for that was, if he is quick, I can't afford to let him go down the line. Because he's going to go down the line across me and then towards goal. Well, I'm going to have to push him across the way. If I'm quicker than him, he's going down the lane all the time because <laughs> I'm going to catch him. So at the start of every game, I would have to let the winger get the ball. And, and, and funny enough, the boss said to me, You take a chance, Kearney. You take, I said, Right, most of the time. He says, I know most of the time it works, but you're taking a chance, you know, because I would let them get the ball. And then I would go to them. So I was standing 45 degrees. The only way he can go is down the line. So he hits the ball down the line and we run. And at that point, I know whether I'm quicker than him or he's quicker than me. Right? He's quicker than me and gets away, I bring him down. I, I, I don't want this broadcast by him. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't afford to let him get across me. But there was very few were quicker than me. Kento of Real Madrid was quicker. And he was about in his mid-30s for that time. So I had to make sure he couldn't go down the line. But the vast majority, Wally Johnson was another one, uh, was very, very quick at the beginning. But I used to, can I tell my story about Wally? Yeah. Of course you can. The start of a game, he was quicker than me, so I couldn't afford to let him down the line. So I was standing in front of him to block him, push him that way, right? But when Wally got the ball, a lot of the time he'd throw it to me, I would take it towards Willie, I just punt it last of 10, 15 yards and run it. And he gets back. A lot of the time he'd get the ball before me, knock it out for throw in or pass it back. But all the time in the first half, we are doing that. He is tiring. Because he is an out and out sprinter, 50, 60 yard sprinter. And I'm better at 200 metres and 400 metres. And I'm maintaining my stamina, and he's tiring. <laughs> and by the time we come to the second half, I've changed completely, because he's now got to spend more time worrying about me running past him than the other way around. And uh, I often wonder why nobody ever pointed out to him. I didn't want him to point out to him. <laughs> but nobody ever did, because all my career, and I thought he was a great player. I thought he was a really outstanding player. But he had, when he was up against somebody quicker than him, he, you know, he had to change his, his plan. 
And uh, eventually what he would do would be come off the wing entirely and go and play somewhere else. And that was his way of admitting defeat. And at the end of the game, I would say to him, where were you, you wee bugger, you know? He'd say that. He'd say, I got, you know, you know, I had to move. And he's still a good player. That's amazing. And in terms of, take me to the dressing room of the Estadio Nacional before the final. What's the atmosphere like? What's Jockstein saying? Does he say a lot? Does he say very little? What happens? Well, two things happened before we got there. The first place, when we left the, the, the bus, or when we, the bus left and we're going away, we see Alfredo de Stefano standing on the steps of the hotel. Now, there, were, there had been rumours that we were going to play in his testimonial match. But it had been confirmed at that point, to us anyway. And uh, it looked now very likely that we were going to play in his testimonial match because he gave us a royal wave as we pulled away. And then as we travelled on in our journey, Somebody shouted from the back of the, the boss was sitting in the front seat. Somebody shouted from the back of the bus, Hey boss, everybody seems to go in a direction, a different direction from the way the bus is going. Could you check with the driver? So the boss checked with the driver who did not know the way to the national stadium. <laughs> and turned the bus around and followed the crowd. So instead of getting to the ground like our usual maybe 45 minutes before the kickoff, or even an hour before the kickoff, which some people do, which I don't altogether agree with, because I think it just allows nerves to build up when you're sitting in there. We were there for maybe about 35 minutes beforehand. which didn't give us much time to get nervous, you know. But we were a cocky bunch. When we came out, we were looking at them. They were looking at us because they had a tan and oiled hair and we had been in the sun for two days and had that kind of blotchy red <laughs> face that Glaswegians get when they just suddenly arrived in Spain or somewhere, you know. And uh, then Bertie started singing the Celtic song up there and oh my goodness, they were looking at us as if they were Oscar, you know. And, they good. and then and now, I don't know if you've ever seen the film of us coming out. If you have a good look at it, you'll see that Ouija is trying to communicate with Giacinto Pacchetti. And he's trying to say to him, big man, swap jerseys after game. After game, swap jerseys. swap jerseys, right? And Pacchetti, whom I met later on, and I met in 2001, poor man is now deceased, but he's a really nice guy, you know? He's looking at him as if, where did he go? But that was all, and it certainly all took the mind of, you know. And the other thing is, as soon as I came up the tunnel, could not believe the number of Celtic strips that were in the crowd and the number of Celtic scars. Unbelievable. Because, Callum, you're talking about 1967. People didn't go on holiday to the continent in 1967. From Glasgow, you went down the water. You went to Ireland or you went to England or somewhere like that, Isle of Man, for another one. You know, you didn't go to the continent. And for many people, that would have been their first trip abroad. And um, it was just amazing to see so many trips. And my dad was up there, I got him. He was a very clever man, my father, and um, he hadn't wanted to come because he thought, and realistically, he probably was right. He thought that Inter would be too strong for us. And he didn't want to go all that way and see his son get beaten in the European Cup. So I bought him a ticket and I had him a, bit, a, a, a seat on a plane. And it was only on the Sunday before the Thursday that I persuaded him to come. Right? So he's sitting up there somewhere behind the goals. And uh, I'll come to him in a minute. But um, uh, at that point, I think we were okay. You know, the nerves are gone, we'd seen the fans, we'd, we realised that we've got to do something positive for them, and, and that was it. You know, and then it all kicked off. And in terms of... After seven minutes, gave away a penalty. <laughs> and um, I still to this day don't think it was a penalty, but then, you know, other people have their ideas. But um, my father, apparently, who was sitting beside my uncle Philip, who was my godfather, I'm James Philip Craig, in honour of him. And uh, he turned to Philip and said, I've come all this bloody way to see that. <laughs> 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 I, 
And then we've had an incident back home because in the chapel house of my parish, Canigo Martin, who was a parish priest, had a very nice housekeeper called Agnes, who was a particular pal of mine because uh, she was a great Celtic fan and always on a Sunday met a point of the chapel. So they sat down to watch the game and he said to Agnes, isn't it wonderful to have one of our, our parishioners involved in such a big occasion? I think I'll have a drink to celebrate, I guess. So she went away and got him a good-sized whiskey and he's sitting there in his big chair with a whiskey. And he said, do you have one yourself, I guess. So she had a wee glass of sherry as well. And I gave away the penalty. And he turned to her and said, your friend Craig made an awful mess of that. <laughs> so in the space of seven minutes, I, I've gone from being the parishioner that's wonderful to have involved in a big occasion to your friend Craig made an awful mess of that. And in my house, where I lived with my parents, my brother Dennis was sitting watching it, and my mother had gone out to weed the garden because she couldn't afford, she couldn't bear to watch the game. And after seven minutes, Dennis stuck his head out the window and said, Mama, it's Celtic, and a penalty kick a water against him. And she said, Oh dear God. And she got hold of the hole and she started attacking the earth with the hole. And then, of course, 30 seconds later, he stuck his head out the window again and said, By the way, Mum, it was Jim that gave away the penalty. And apparently she went. <laughs> there was weeds and flowers going all, all over the place. <laughs> and I was in on the pitch and not knowing any of this was going on in Lisbon. <laughs> and in terms of yourself, see when you give away the penalty and the score, how how do you feel at that moment? Do you feel as if here we go, if this finishes the way it is, because they're known for their cat and actually they're going to shut up shop. Are you thinking sure. to yourself, I've cost us this final? No, I'm, I'm pretty positive at a time like that. I, I'm quite good at putting things behind me, and that was, I thought that. I called the referee a few things from a distance, mind you, because I wasn't stupid enough to do it up close because he would take some action. But I, I questioned his birthright, you know, quite regularly for the rest of the game, and um, so, but not when he was near me. So, and I just tried to take my anger out on my opponents. Well, I tell you, I was up against a clever guy because Capolini just immediately went to outside right for a while because he must have known that I was gunning for him. And he was an intelligent man. And so I'll just keep out the road for a while. So the boy that had been outside right came over to my side and I was playing against him for a while. But no, I mean, you just got to put things like that behind you. And we, we, it would be fair to say we took control of the game, but just could not make the breakthrough. I mean, uh, before the game, the only player whom Jock had been uh, a little um, uncomplimentary about was the goalkeeper, who he thought was um, a bit kind of dodgy sometimes, you know. Well, on that day, he had a day to remember, you know, and um, was stopping everything that was coming to him. And at half time, the boss just told me to forget about the penalty incident. Let's, we're doing fine. Let's go on with the game. We told Gemma and myself to try and get a wee bit further forward so that when we passed the ball, it was coming back the way to the forwards who were there. Now, that's a big shift. That's a big ask because it means that you're coming from your 80 yards up the park, you know, and uh, you got 80 yards back. He used to have this wonderful thing where he would say before a game, he would. We used to, I don't know if they still do, but we used to strip an order of numbers, you know, Ronnie, myself, Dan, Murdoch, McNeil, Clark. And he would, uh, at one point, before a big game, he would come up and he would create a space between me and Tam, put his foot up on the ledge and start mucking with his laces. Nothing wrong with him, by the way, but he'd just well, he'd retire, you know, and he would say, could I remind you two gentlemen that you are defenders first and attackers second? And he would tie the lace and go. <laughs> and when I went to see Tam, and I make a bit, I'll get a little emotional here, but when I went to see Tam when he was in hospital at the end, in the hospice, um, and the day I went in to see him, I didn't realise it was the last time I saw him. And I got to the door and I said, all right, big fella, I'll see you soon. And he punched his shoulder and I went to the door and he says, Kearney, 
Oh, I don't apologise, Jim, honestly. And in terms of the emotion that you're showing there is the emotion that so many of the Celtic fan base show as well because the, the thing about the great team that you were in, and we'll talk about the second half in a wee sec, <clears throat> the likes of, of, of Tam, Big Billy, Stevie Chalmers and Jimmy and, and others. It's just, it's sad that life comes to an end for, for all of us, even even the immortals of the Lisbon Lions. And oh, indeed, yeah. And, um, it's been uh, tough for the families to go through because it's been very public. You know, death is something that you think of as a private affair where, you know, the families are there to mourn. Uh, but, you know, with Celtic fans, naturally they want to pay their respects. And it's been tough for the lives. Um, of the, the guys who are deceased and um, I hopped and sympathy go out to them. Um, for those of us who are left, um, it's been um, a difficult time too because um, people sometimes say things and they <laughs> realise that they could be funningly, funningly awful sometimes, you know. I was a guy getting into town, I was, I was getting into town one day, I'd been at Mass on Sunday and Elizabeth said, Ask me, the church is in Perth, but it's about, um, I've always had a knee operation, so well, it's been a bad time for her. She's got, it's, it's not worked, and she's waiting to go to the hospital again to get it done again. But of course, the way things are just now, there might be some time, you know. Uh, so she said to me, would you go into town and get someone? I can't remember what it was. So I'm walking into town, and I'm trying to remember what the thing was that I had to get. And this guy caught up with me, and we're chatting football, and he says to me, Jim, what do the Lisbon Lions and White Rhinos have in common? I said, I don't know. He says, you're both endangered species. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's cheeky, right? <laughs> but in actual fact, later on, I found it really quite funny, you know? <laughs> it's definitely true, you know? <laughs> there are only a few of us left, you know? <laughs> Uh, but uh, but they say things like that without, they're not meaning to offend. They just think that they might make me a bit more cheerful than I, I possibly am or something like that. No, it's been, uh, it's been difficult. And um, it's particularly difficult for Wispy because he's in Australia where he's away from the, the others. And um, I keep in touch with him regularly. And uh, I phone the others. Uh, maybe every couple of weeks or so, and we'll have to have a, have a chat. They're all doing well, and um, uh, you know, it's um, we always have a chat about a big occasion because it was to play in a European Cup final, something that not many players get the opportunity to do, and to win a European Cup final, even fewer do that. You know, so it's um, it's great to speak to somebody who was there at the time and who has shared their life uh, ever since. Absolutely, and you mentioned the fact that Jock tells you at half-time, look, don't worry about the penalty, just stay calm, we're doing well, we'll keep going. Describe the second half from your perspective on the pitch, because the way the both goals are incredible goals, when you think of the team moves as well, it just it's the way, as we've talked about in this show already, it's the way football should be played. Yeah, indeed. And as I mentioned here at the beginning, it's a team effort. Everybody is involved. And they're all passing the ball and they're going for the return and they're all playing the ball forward and, and all the things that you should do to make a team successful when it gets into the opposition half. They're all there. It was very frustrating, though, because the keeper, as I mentioned, having a, having a field day, you know, and he did make some really outstanding saves, you know. He got away with one. I thought he fouled Wispy at one point, but, you know, so that might have been one where uh, the AAR may have given it a favour, but um, we'll never know. Um, but when the breakthrough, when it did come, I mean, uh, that was one of jokes. You know, he mentioned trying to cut the ball back a bit for Tam, and uh, it was a fine pass, first of all, from Murdoch to me to get forward. And funny enough, I was at a do one night, and um, this guy 
he was there. This was the second time he'd seen the Lisbon film. And he'd come up after me when he'd seen it the first time and said, why did you delay so long before you passed the ball to Gail? And I explained to him why. And he said, um, all right, I don't know, I thought of that. And when he, when he saw it the second time that night, he said to me, Jim, I realise now what you're waiting for. Because as I went forward, I knew Gemma was there. He was screaming his flaming head off, you know. And he said to me one day, you know, a few years later, did you know he was there? I said, your granny heard you, and she's in flaming coat mess, you know. I said, I was waiting. Because <laughs> there was a guy in front of me, and I was waiting for him to move. Because he was going to block Tam short. It was going to hit a Tam, where I was going to pass to Tam short from there. It was going to hit this guy. So I'm waiting for him to come towards me, and I'm coming forward a wee bit at a time. And eventually, he does come towards me, so freeze the goal, and then I pass it to him. And people have said to me in the past, no, you couldn't possibly have thought all of that at the time. And I said, don't be silly. You're, you're a professional footballer. You know, we're not all thick. You think of things all the time. And imagine situations and how to get out of situations and how to get into situations. I said, it's perfectly logical for a footballer to think of something like that. He's blocking the pass just now, but if I get him to come towards me, he's not blocking the pass anymore. And of course, Tam got the shot and stayed in the top corner. Couldn't have done it better, you know? And uh, so that was the trigger. <clears throat> and from then on, <clears throat> I firmly believe they knew they were beaten. I think their heads went right down. And um, it wasn't too long after that that we got the second one as well. Although in between there was that moment where there was a breakaway and Ronnie backheeled the ball to John Clark. And um, <clears throat> oh, I think most of us nearly wet our trousers at that particular moment because it was one of those disastrous situations where we had all maybe pushed too far up the park and um, and only John was, was back there, you know. So uh, it was a difficult situation. But you know, we all thought at that time that it, it would come eventually. And of course it was a... A move that we had practiced and rehearsed at training time after time after time. Plus, like me coming in, passing the ball to nearly the edge of the box, she would lay it off, we'd hammer it across the goal, you know, we'd go to the byline, cut it across the goal. And we did it so many times at training that it just became a routine. And on the day, it just worked uh, absolutely perfectly. And um, she was on the spot, straight around. When the full-time whistle goes, describe your emotions because when you look back at that now, Celtic being the first British team to win the European Cup, it's a moment of history that no one can ever take away from Celtic. No one can ever take away from Jock, from you and your teammates. It's a moment of, it's the biggest moment in Scottish football history and I, I would argue with the finances in football now, it always will be. I mean, what just what was it like at full time and then when Billy has to go up the steps on his own? Was that at all strange? Well, first of all, uh, when it came to the full time whistle, um, everybody went berserk. The players went berserk, the fans went berserk coming out of the park. And suddenly I had a problem because I lost jersey, boots and socks. And arrived in the dressing room holding on the pants and jock strap. That was it. And uh, so that was my biggest worry, was reaching the dressing room before I lost everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm afraid everything else went by the board. I didn't give a damn about who was picking up the cup because I knew we'd won it, you know. And um, when we got to the dressing room and uh, I breathed a sigh of relief, um, it was... Uh, a bit of a scenario there as well because Billy had also suffered getting to the dressing room, as had a few others, and when he was told he was going to have to go out again, he was not for it at all. He did not want to go to go out and get a cup at all. He told him he'd bring a cup back to the present in the dressing room. <laughs> um, and uh, it was only with reluctance and, uh, you know, the boss eventually had to rank and say, no, you need to go, you know, and uh, they, he got a squad from uh, UEFA to uh, stand on either side of him as he went back out again, and I believe they got a car, I don't know if they got a car on the way out, but I believe they got a car on the way back with the cup, so there. So while that was happening, we were oblivious to everything else, we just knew they had uh, won and were having a drink, 
just um, soft drink I may add at that particular time. We did have some champagne from the European Cup when it came back in again, but at that point it was the soft drink. And just kind of mulling over the game and the way players do after a, a match and wondering when we'll see the boy again with the European Cup, you know. But uh, eventually came through the door and that was it. So from then on it was... Um, we all get dressed, had a shower, dressed all the way around, shower and dressed. And um, then we're taken to a banquet, waited ages for Inter Milan to turn up. And um, they were quite uh, rude at, at that. They should have been there much sooner. Um, and we enjoyed the meal, certainly. I don't know if they did, but we certainly enjoyed the meal. And then one of the directors of UEFA came up and put what looked like a shoebox in front of Jock's team. And when he opened it up, that was the medals. And he handed them out to the players just by passing them along one to another. You know? And that was how we got presented uh, with our medals. Is the European, then, uh, I was going to ask you, and when you lift the European Cup, just how heavy is it? Oh, it is heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. Yeah. I got my photograph taken with it once. And that was about 1990. And um, that was the only time I got my photograph taken with it because it was put in the cupboard at Celtic Park and just the attitude was, we'll win another one. Never mind that one. We'll win another one. Just leave it there, you know, because we got a replica, you know. And, uh, however, my, my big moment, must be, I'm going to be a bit romantic in a minute, but the big moments have not finished yet because we going back to Glasgow. And um, the one thing happened there, I've got to stress, I always thought it was actually um, a real tribute to a man. When we arrived at the airport, John Lawrence, the chairman of Rangers, was there to congratulate us. And I always thought, sign of a big man, that he would do that. From as the chairman of a team who has had uh, a rivalry with Celtic and a bitter rivalry, religiously bitter sometimes to the annoyance of more than a few people like myself. Um, he, he took the trouble to come down to the airport and congratulate Bob Kelly, chairman, and then congratulate the players as well. Big man. So we then got on a bus. I don't like a few people say, oh, it must have been great going past eyebrows. We didn't go past eyebrows. We went along from the airport and we went down the tunnel and went along the north side of Wherever. And we come down to Celtic Park to go inside. And uh, we're in the boardroom and we're having a drink and reliving the famous moments. And um, suddenly this young red-headed lady was in front of me and said, um, congratulations. And I said, thank you very much. Now I recognised her. She was the director of Jimmy Farrell, who's one of the Celtic directors. She'd actually come to, actually, she never saw the game because she was sitting um, an exam at the time and it overran. And she had to rush home and try and see the game. She only saw the last bit. She never saw my, giving away the penalty. Um, and uh, she said, Congratulations. And I said, Thank you very much. And what are you doing yourself? She said, Well, um, I've just finished my third year in languages at Glasgow University. And uh, next year, I'm going to France to work as an assistant in the school. And I said to her, well, be sure and get your teeth checked before you go. And she said, well, fine enough, my dentist has just retired. And I said, well, I'll look at them for you. And that was how I met my wife. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is incredible. So not only do you win the European Cup, you also get the lady <laughs> of your dreams as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I saw her following week and had a look at her teeth, which were absolutely perfect. And then I said, I wanted to see her again, but I was in a delicate situation because she was the director's daughter, you know, and players didn't go out with director's daughter. You know? So I phoned her up and I said that according, this is all a pack of lies, by the way, but I said, according to National Health Service regulation rules, after you've had an examination, you've got to have your teeth cleaned afterwards. And I said, and that's in the, the law, so I need to bring you back in again. <laughs> So, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and 10 days later, I asked her to marry me. And uh, she went home and told her mother that she'd met Miss Nusser. 
And I had to ask her another 52 times before she eventually said yes. And we've now been married for 51 years. So, uh, <laughs> that is an incredible story. No, thank you for telling that, Jim, because in terms of your success on the pitch, you, you've also been very successful off the pitch. You talked there about meeting your wife. You've been married for 51 years, which is incredible. You've got children, you've got grandchildren. But in terms of the dentistry, that's something that you are, you've also been incredibly successful with. And the reason I find that interesting is we all know about footballers, maybe even now in the modern era, being very successful on the pitch. But it's quite rare to be successful on the pitch to the extent where a European Cup winner also be incredibly successful off the pitch. What was that like for you? Well, don't forget, I was, I was doing dentistry before I played football, you know. I... Um, I I, played for, I was captain of Scottish Schoolboys in my final year at school and then Celtic made me an offer to come and play for them. And I said, right, I'll play, uh, I'll play for a third team, but I'll play as an amateur because I don't want, I'm a professional, they can say, you, you'll need to come to that one, come to that one. As an amateur, I could sort of please myself, you know. And uh, so I did that for a year. <clears throat> and then I dropped out of football for two years because second year, third year, then actually quite tough and I didn't have time to do both. But when I went fourth year, I started playing for the university team. <clears throat> and unknown to me, this was Sean Fallon, I have to blame for this. Unknown to me, there was a guy watching me all the time. Every single university game. Now, he was in the same parish as me. And I used to meet him on a Sunday. And he never mentioned it at all. And he would come and see the game. And he would stand behind a tree or he'd sit in his car and watch it through binoculars or something like that. And he kept saying to Sean Fallon, no, he's ready, he's suitable to sign. You just need to get him to sign. So they made me approach again halfway through my fourth year. And I went home and I thought about it. And I thought, well, I'm halfway through my fourth year of a five-year course. I'm going to qualify at some time, even if it's going to be a bit difficult to fit it all in. And it takes me maybe an extra year to do it. <laughs> I will finish it at some point. So I signed there and... Um, I joined Celtic in January 65 and I qualified in 66. So I did a year and a half doing both. And um, it was kind of hard going um, at its moments, but um, I'm glad I did. I was 50 years a dentist. <laughs> I qualified in 66, retired in 2016. And um, uh, they're having a hard time just now, you know, because they're not allowed to work. You know, the, because of the sprays off the machines, they're not allowed to do any work in patients. So it's a very frustrating time for them. So I'm glad I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's one good thing that came with. No, it was good being in the, the profession, met a lot of nice people, met some wonderful girls, because uh, usually, the, you know, I would say about 95% of the nurses are female. They don't get paid very well, they work very hard. and. Um, I enjoyed the company. They would say to me sometimes, Jim can ask you something, and I would, my heart would sink because it could be something pretty personal. I didn't really want to get involved in. And then one classic occasion, I went a walk. I used to go walk every lunchtime. I'd take my sandwiches in my pocket and walk. I was in Stirling, you know, so I used to walk up the castle, back down again, eat my sandwiches, came in about 10 to 2, start at 2 o'clock again. Jim, can we ask you a question? I said, go ahead. It's a bit personal question. I don't mind. Go ahead. When did you lose your virginity? <laughs> I said last century. <laughs> this is about 2003, 2004, so it was perfectly correct, you know. Well, I seemed to accept that. That was that was all. <laughs> I got out of it that way. <laughs> no, they've been great. They keep in touch, you know. I, I got a text from one of them yesterday, and lovely girl, and is now a prison officer, and. Um, in one of Scotland's prisons, and uh, he's got fed up with dentistry. And, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, every single prisoner will be having a good look at her and saying to them, so she's a cracker, by the way, because she was, she was a lovely girl, you know. But um, this shows you, you, you can end up strange places sometimes. <laughs> How do you reflect back overall on your life in football, but also your life outside of football as well? Because as I said, Earlier, it's, it's been very successful and it seems like a very happy and joyous life where you've met so many great people within football, but also, as you've just said there, out with football too. 
I've been very lucky. I mean, I was lucky in my football career to arrive at Celtic Park at a time like that because, I mean, until they won the Scottish Cup in 1965, the previous trophy was 1957 when they won the League Cup 7-1 game. That was the previous time they'd won a trophy. So you're talking about eight years um, without a trophy. Fans were, you know, uh, in a terrible situation and um, really disappointed the way things were going. So it was, it was very fortunate to... Uh, arrive at Celtic Park at that particular time. Very fortunate to have teammates that I had. Very fortunate we had a manager that we had, a backroom staff that we had. Everything just, you know, went very well. I must tell you another story where it just shows you things don't always work for you. We weren't supposed to travel abroad when we were playing, right? And for that reason, our passports were in the office. But shortly after I met Elizabeth, she was in Paris, you know, and I wanted to go and see her for a long weekend, right? So I bribed the girl in the office with a box of chocolates and a bottle of wine <laughs> to get my passport out, right? And I left from Glasgow on a Saturday night about eight o'clock. I came back on a Sunday night about the same, right? And uh, I get to the airport, got a little bag with me, and I've got my hood up and I've got a bonnet on, right? And I think, um, not too obvious, right? And um, I have my passport in, and the guy checks it. Is that all your baggage? Yes, sir. Okay, well, Jim, I hope you have a nice time, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and I've taken the trouble to put the bonnet on and the collar up. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Waste of time, you know? <laughs> no, it's been a great period we've been really really lucky um, because things have gone well for us a nice family nice grandchildren uh, nice house especially that new room i've just painted and uh, <laughs> um, everything's gone very well for us um, i'm very grateful to god for giving me the opportunity to do it all you know? um, the last question i've got for you jim thank you so much for your time the question that I think is most appropriate to ask someone like yourself who played in the Lisbon Lions team, very successful, winning many, many trophies, working under, in many people's opinion, arguably the greatest Scottish manager of all time in Jock Steen. What advice would you give to any young budding footballers listening to this now? Because although you played many years ago, you've had a life in football, you still watch football. What, what advice would you give them? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, and the girls in the practice used to be very, very careful and get to tell me not to do this, right? Some man would bring his kid in, right, who was nine or ten, and tell me that he had just bought him a season ticket for Celtic Park. And Monossi says, you could nearly see my eyes crossing at the thought, right? And he would stand behind the man and his husband and Go like that, meaning don't blow your top, because I was about to blow my top and say, why is he going to Celtic games? He should be playing. He's the future. If every kid of that age didn't play football, where's the players of the future coming? So don't buy your kid a season ticket at Celtic Park if he's 8, 9, 10, 11. Get him playing. Playing on Saturday morning, playing on Saturday afternoon, playing Sunday. All my boys, the reason they played rugby was, I put them to the Cubs during the week. And we played for the club team on a Saturday. And if they didn't do something right, this guy was shouting them. Now, I used to stand away from that because I made a point of not saying anything. And, and religiously, I didn't say anything. Why is he shouting at that eight-year-old boy? He, he's made a balls of that because he's eight. Not because he's not trying. He's not putting the effort in, you know. He's doing it because he doesn't have the talent at eight years of age to kill a ball down that's coming out of it there. That's why he's, he's made a balls of it, you know? Yeah. And when I put him to rugby, I went, I put him to mini rugby on a Sunday because it gave me three, four hours with Elizabeth. We could go for a cup of coffee somewhere while they're involved somewhere else, you know? And when they dropped the ball, the guy would say, pick it up and go again, right? And not scream at them for dropping the ball because on a freezing cold night, your hands are cold. <laughs> and it's not unlikely. And it, 
And for some strange reason, they wouldn't let them wear the gloves because it was a wee bit feminine. Bloody hell, no way. If it's a cold day, what is, are you going to big straw man do? Put on a pair of gloves to me, you know? <laughs> not allowed, you know, at that age. <laughs> and, but, he, but they didn't shout at him. He said, come on, pick it up, go again. Right, so they all played rugby. And I always thought it was a terrible condemnation of football that they would not, you know, that, that, that was the reason that they're all rugby players and not footballers, you know. Incidentally, they all did very well. They had one international, two under 21 internationals, and they all played for first division teams in Scotland. And I went to see them in England, Ireland, Wales, France. That was it. Yeah, amazing. And uh, all during the 90s, I was all over the place, treated beautifully wherever I went. Oh, Mr. Craig, nice to see you. How are you doing? What are you here for? Oh, your boys playing, of course. I forgot your boys playing. I don't know if in the borders or Fife or Edinburgh or somewhere along. You must get your drink. Come on, get it. You'll be driving, of course. I can't have you sort of softly. Yeah. Could be nicer, you know. Could be nicer. Well, as I say, thank you for your time, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been an education for me as well into into that great Lisbon Lions era of Celtic, what it was like playing under Jock Steen. And I can only thank you once again for your time because it means an awful lot to me to have you on the show. Not at all. And so we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our 